Today we close out our series that we have been on all summer long about the Old Testament. We have made our way through stories of Samuel, remember him, the prophet who anointed Israel's first king, Saul, but then went ahead and anointed another young man from Bethlehem, David. And David proved his fitness for the throne by killing the great Philistine giant Goliath. David established his capital in Jerusalem and brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city. But David also had great shortcomings, didn't he? Including his affair with Bathsheba, he, which he tried to cover up by killing her husband. But when David was confronted by the prophet Nathan, as we saw last week, King David had the courage to admit that he had sinned. One of the few times in history, I challenge you to, to look, where a prophet confronted a king, the king admitted his mistake and didn't kill the prophet. So today we close out our Old Testament series by looking at David's son, Solomon, whose mother, by the way, was Bathsheba. And what we see Solomon asking for was not long life. He didn't ask for power. He didn't ask for money or status or even good health. Solomon asks for what? He asked for an understanding mind. In short, Solomon asked for wisdom. And of course, the Lord grants Solomon's request in the very next section. If you keep reading these verses that come after our lesson for today, you will hear the famous story of Solomon being confronted by two women who claim to have the rights to one child. Just a little teaser. And Solomon was known to be very wise, and it is because of him that, because of that, the book of Proverbs is attributed to him. Listen to Proverbs 9. A scoffer who is rebuked will only hate you. The wise, when rebuked, will love you. Give instruction to the wise, and they will become wiser still. Teach the righteous, and they will gain in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So as we wrap up our series, I'd ask us to time out of Solomon for just a minute and take a step back and look at the big picture of the Old Testament, because I want us to try to see a pattern or maybe even an evolution, if you will, in how the Old Testament developed. So as you take a step back and look at some of the big key figures of the Old Testament, we might mention people like Moses, Elijah, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Daniel, any other big names pop out you just as you're thinking about big Old Testament names. This is one time, by the way, where the normal Sunday school answer of Jesus will not work because that was a New Testament. Anybody else come to, to mind as you're thinking about Old Testament? 
Abraham, there we go, big, big name. Okay, so just for an exercise, let's pick three of those. Let's pick Moses, Isaiah, and Solomon. And what these three key Old Testament figures represent is an important pattern. Moses, let's start with him, what did he do? If you saw the movie with Charlton Heston, you remember that he went up to the mountain and came down with the Ten Commandments. And so we think of Moses as the giver of the law. And when you have Isaiah, what did Isaiah do? Well, Isaiah spoke on behalf of Yahweh, of the Lord. Sometimes Isaiah spoke words of comfort. Comfort ye, comfort ye, O my people, which was, as you know, this beginning phrase of Handel's Messiah. But sometimes Isaiah spoke words of correction like, Woe to you who strive with your maker, earthen vessels with the potter. Does the clay say to the one who fashions it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? So will you question me about my children or command me concerning the works of my hands? Isaiah 43. But Isaiah also spoke words of hope. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. They will pick up and spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah 2. So Isaiah represents the prophets. And Solomon, what did he do? Solomon asked for wisdom. And Solomon represents the wisdom tradition like the book of Proverbs and the book of Job and Ecclesiastes, which says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1. So Moses, law, Isaiah, prophets, Solomon, wisdom. And there you have the three basic elements of the Hebrew Bible, which is known by the Tanakh. The T in Tanakh is for Torah, which stands for law or teaching. Then the N in Tanakh is for Nevi'im, which is Hebrew for prophets. And then the K in Tanakh is Ketuvim, which is writings or wisdom. So scholars believe that this is pretty much how the order of the Hebrew Bible was put together. First, they started with the teachings of Moses. Then to the Torah, they added the prophets like Isaiah and Hosea. And last was added to the law and to the prophets was the writings or the wisdom literature. And this is where it gets interesting, at least for me, but you'll have to endure it anyway, because some have suggested that this is the same pattern, law to prophets to wisdom represents the evolution of human consciousness, or even how we grow up as people, the stages of life, if you will. First, when we're young children, we start with the law and Moses. 
For the Torah represents structure and rules and guidelines and boundaries. And if that is done well, then the result is that we develop as young children a healthy ego, a healthy sense of who we are. Children who are raised with boundaries and structure know that they are loved. They know that they are special. And that is the gift of the law, who we are. It helps us to know that life can be trusted. But as we age, typically about the time we go off to college or college age, we begin to develop the capacity for self-criticism. And that is the gift of the prophetic voice within us. It teaches us when we get off track. You know, you go off and you make a few mistakes and you learn by those mistakes, right? And also that capacity within us for self-criticism challenges not to get stuck in an overzealous reliance upon the law which raised us. The prophets should never dismiss the law the way we are raised. It, the law does have its place and has a purpose, but remember Jesus also said, I come not to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. So if we get stuck in the law, then we will spend most of our time, even into adulthood, looking at others and pointing our fingers to them and others who are not like us and maybe have their own laws that are different than the way that we were raised. And we will begin to critique them and challenge them and use the law against them. And of course, the stereotypical way that we think about that in the Bible was when we think about the scribes and the Pharisees. In the New Testament, Jesus spent most of his time challenging their understanding of the law and how they applied it to others and not to themselves. The scribes and the Pharisees knew the law so well, but they had never developed the capacity for self-reflection and self-criticism. In the journey of faith, Jesus teaches us, invites us to move beyond the Torah so that we may develop a compassion for people who are different from us and don't look like us and were raised differently than we were raised so that we may have the capacity to show mercy and to identify with them, especially those who are less privileged than we are. Most of the time, most of us fail to realize that the prophetic call to self-criticism and identification with the poor, those not like us, that whole body of work represents a significant portion of the Old Testament, the prophet, the prophetic literature. And Jesus himself, when he begins his ministry, quotes the prophets. He quotes Isaiah and he says, the reason I am here, the reason that God sent me to be here with you is to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free. It's an identification with the other, the poor, those who are not in the privileged class like we are. So law is important. It has its place. 
but only when, when we have been able to move from the Torah to the voice of the prophets and self-criticism, only then will we have any chance to move into what the Hebrew Bible is structured as wisdom. Sure, we begin with the Ten Commandments, but we also are challenged to live into the wisdom of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Matthew 5. So wisdom is different than facts and data, isn't it? Somebody said that knowledge is being able to know that tomatoes are fruit, but the wisdom means that you know enough not to put them in the fruit salad. <laughs> are they even fruits? I don't know. We all know people who have lots of data and trivia up in their minds, but they couldn't make a wise decision if their life depended upon it. And Solomon is described in the Bible as wise because, as it says in the scriptures, people perceived that he used the wisdom of God. It was in him. So when he made decisions, they were just decisions. Just decisions that didn't take sides but got to the heart of the matter in between, the real issue. So wisdom is being able to say, I know what I know, and I know what I don't know, and I'm okay with that. Wisdom is comfortable with ambiguity. Wisdom lives into mystery. It dwells in mystery, and it is the place where imagination and creativity began. It is said that Jesus in the New Testament in the four Gospels was asked 183 different questions. And in the Gospels, he only answered three of them directly. Three direct answers that did not come back with yet another question. You see, everyone is searching for facts and data, but what faith is about is mystery and imagination. What we think we need is answers, but what we really need is wisdom. Wisdom moves us beyond asking why and helps us to enter the land of, I don't know, and I'm okay with that. So when you read the Bible, and yes, please read the Bible, because if we, as you know, some wisdom literature might say, you can't reap what you don't sow. So when we read the Bible, read the Bible not so much that you may be able to prove your neighbor wrong. I'm going to show you, I'll quote you scripture and verse. It happened to me in the journal just yesterday. <laughs> but that's using the Bible as a sword to divide because it insists that in order for me to be right, you have to be wrong. No, don't read the Bible that way. 
Read the Bible so that you may be changed. Jesus came so that we might be transformed into new creations. God gave us the Bible so that we may grow in love, loving both God and neighbor. The Bible calls us away from the sword-shaped life and into the cross-shaped life. Love of God and love of neighbor can never, never, honestly, with integrity, be separated. Read the Bible so that you may see life the way God sees life, with a wise heart. My friends, this is a matter of great importance. Because what we're doing now is simply not working. Because if we have a room full of 100 people, and each one of those 100 people has their opinion, and they know that they're right, all that does is just lead to violence. Sure, we're not hitting each other and clobbering each other upside the head, but there is violence in the way that we look at each other and treat each other. And then, yes, it does go off into a deep violence that we see on the news. People opening fire on a Sikh temple just north of us. People burning down a mosque in Joplin, Missouri, just south of us. It's all around us. And sure, we can send a mechanical robot, a great rover called what? Curiosity, great name. We can send that to the Mars, and I'm sure that is fine and all if we can somehow find the money to, to pay for that. And that's going to give us some great information and data and facts. But our prayer needs to be, our prayer needs to be that it will move us into a capacity for wisdom and understanding. Because what we're doing right now is not working for most people in the world. Deep down, we know that. In the Bible, it says that Jesus, about the age of 12, it says that he grew in wisdom and in understanding, and in favor with God and with man. That's my prayer for my children. I challenge you this day to be wise people so that they may look at you and learn wisdom. Sure, they need to know facts and data. They need that law. They need that structure that they know that they are beloved children. But the children in our community need, most of all, to understand who they are and to be able to see the way God sees.